I challenge you to a duel. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Movie Jewel podcast. My name is Peter and I am your host. Each episode of the Movie Jewel podcast we select a subject that's based around movies and then myself and my co-host each pick a film that we think best fits that subject. The only rule being that we cannot discuss the same movie more than once. On this episode of the Movie Jewel podcast I will once again be joined by the fantastic Nicole Davis and we will be discussing our choices for a subject I called Failed Nostalgia or Memory Lapse. Basically a film that we used to like and we've watched recently and it was terrible. But before we get into that just a few points I'd like to go through. Obviously with this being episode 10 it's quite a momentous number for us to get to. As you may or may not know, a lot of fledgling podcasts don't get past episode 3, so to be at episode 10, it's uh, quite an achievement. And I'd like to thank everybody who's supported the Movie Jewel podcast uh, in its first 10 episodes, um, through its its various changes, and especially to those who've taken part, to Vanessa, to Nicole, to Tarquin. Um, we've got you know a, f- a few other people who are uh, on the horizon as sort of new new guest co-hosts. Um, I'm looking at the moment, um, possibly doing some guesting on other podcasts as well. So a lot of development going on with the um, Movie Jewel podcast. Um, and yeah, just a big thank you to everybody who supported us uh, this far. Um, and hopefully uh, we can continue uh, to provide you with uh, good discussions about movies, uh, some interesting facts and uh, a little bit of light-hearted uh, chit-chat about the world of cinema and for those of you that uh, are not following us on facebook or on twitter uh, we posted this week about some upcoming episodes i thought i'd uh, let those people who, who aren't on there just know about what's uh, coming up on movie Jewel podcast uh, not necessarily in this order but we've got best bond film uh, with a brand new guest co-host uh, mr jamie russell I'm very excited about that We've got Best Outlaw Biker Movie uh, with the returning Tarquin Mandrake. And we've got Worst Horror Remake with Vanessa Cordner. Uh, and then finally on the horizon, we also have the inaugural Spin the Wheel, Make a Deal episode. Uh, this is a brand new concept for us uh, where uh, we have a random subject selector, which is very high tech and I'm sure you will see Uh, the fruits of that operation shortly uh, through Facebook and through uh, Twitter but basically it picks us uh, a subject at random Uh, and Nicole uh, is obviously joining me today uh, has very kindly volunteered to be the first uh, sort of guinea pig for that so keep your eyes peeled for uh, Facebook and Twitter post uh, that will be revealing what that random subject will be uh, in the near future uh, I'd also like to remind you of how you can get in touch with us here at Movie Jewel Podcast. Uh, first of all, you can email us at moviejewelpodcast at gmail.com. You can also contact us through Facebook, uh, www.facebook.com forward slash Movie Jewel Podcast. 
And then finally, as mentioned uh, in the last couple of episodes, we are now on Twitter, at MovieJewelPod. So you can follow us on there as well. Uh, Give us a like, give us a follow, give us a a retweet on on our posts. I'd like to thank uh, some of the people that have, uh, future guest co-host, Mr. Jamie Russell. Uh, He um, has uh, been following us and and pushing us on uh, Twitter, so thank you very much, Jamie. Uh, And also to uh, Cinema Recall Podcast, uh, which uh, has has retweeted a couple of our posts. Uh, So thank you to them. Um, and just really, you know, point you in the direction if you like movie podcast. At Cinema Recall, we want to present to you the finest in film analysis. Yeah, like action and gore and sex. We will look at classics by Kubrick, Lynch, Godard, De Palma, and Coppola. I don't know who the f- that is, but I'm looking at classic bodies of Christina Hendricks. Keanu Reeves, Salma Hayek, Ryan Reynolds. We are a serious show for film lovers who enjoy indie foreign films, art house gems, and classic black and white features. Well, I enjoy big budget blockbusters with great action and sexy people. Maybe our podcast can celebrate all aspects of films, like people who feel like your weird way and like people who feel like my weird way can like get together, man. They can? Yeah. You know, I like that. Cinema Recall is available everywhere you find great podcasts. Follow them on Facebook and Instagram under Cinema Recall Podcast and on Twitter at Cinema underscore Recall. And with that said, without further ado, let's head on over to the main discussion. Let's roll! Okay, so welcome back to the Movie Jewel podcast to Nicole Davis. How are you, Nicole? I'm well, thank you. There's nothing new, different, or exciting in my life since the last time I was <laughs> on. I'm still a co-host of the Movie Go Round podcast and frequent guest host on several others, and uh, proofreader, grammar fiend. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> And fan of a particular movie from the 90s that I was disappointed on rewatch. <laughs> so, have you, have you been watching anything interesting lately? I did just see John Wick Chapter 4 yesterday. Okay. Which, as one might expect, has excellent extended stunt sequences. <laughs> not as much story. I'm not sure that it justifies two hours and 49 minutes of runtime, Okay, but uh, I did enjoy myself the whole time, so I can't say that it was, that was too much of a detriment for it. I must admit, I have not seen any of the John Wick films at all. Wow. Not a single one. (laughs) Honestly, in terms of consistent quality of any film series, it is way up there. Really? For, you know really unexpectedly good off the bat and it maintains it nearly throughout the whole thing okay cool i'll have to look i mean it sometimes takes me a long time to get around to things even though you know it's not something i've particularly avoided or not got any Mm. interest in at all it's just it's just time i suppose i mean i've only just last week got around to watching uh the wolf of wall street oh my goodness which i mean is what nearly it's 10 years old now, I think, nearly. Yes. 
which I, I really enjoyed. I think it was like a lot of Scorsese films. Um, I really enjoyed it, but I probably wouldn't watch it again. I don't think it's uh, it's it's all that. Understandable. <laughs> I enjoyed it as well, but not something that I have any real desire to go back to. Uh, although I do understand a lot more gifs and memes now from watching that. <laughs> <laughs> so last time uh, you were here, we were discussing liminal space horror, which was uh, your choice of subject. And uh, this time round, it fell back to me to pick a subject. And I went for something a little bit different, I suppose. The subject I've gone for is has taken many titles so far. Um, memory lapse uh, being one of them and failed nostalgia which I think you you came up with before we started recording Um, so when you view this episode on uh, whatever podcast platform you look at uh, it could have one one or both of those titles but basically it means a film that we used to love or a film that we watched a lot in younger years uh, and have watched recently and changed our opinion on sadly yes (laughs) (laughs) so was this an easy choice for you this time no actually um when i was trying to think of the right film for this i decided on my own you know my own parameter was it it needed to be you know something that i thought was really awesome the first time i saw it and then realized later in life that it wasn't great so you know my first thought was highlander Happy Halloween, ladies. Nuns. No sense of humor. But that doesn't qualify because as much as I absolutely loved it as a teenager, I realized at that time that it was kind of cheesy and not the best quality in several ways with the exception of the soundtrack of course <laughs> here we are born to be kings we're the princes of the but i got it down to two films my selection that i ended up with and top gun i rewatched parts of top gun and Realized that while it's not the greatest movie in the world and it doesn't have a lot of complexity, you know, it's a hotshot pilot, gets a great opportunity, does well, gets humbled, comes back more mature, <laughs> uh, that it at least has some emotional resonance, yes. if only because of Anthony Edwards' character, Goose. Come on, Mav, bet's a bet. I don't know, it just, uh, just doesn't seem fair. For you, I mean. But, uh... She's lost that loving feeling. She's like, no, she hasn't. Yes, she has. She has not lost that look. Goose, she's lost it, Matt. Come on. I hate it when she does that. Well, I'm eternally grateful because the fact that you did not choose Top Gun means I did not have to watch Top Gun again because I cannot stand (laughs) that film. Um, And it takes a hell of a lot for me to get through a Tom Cruise film because I can't stand Tom Cruise. What? You don't want to watch a recruiting ad for the United States (laughs) Naval Aviation? Come on. I'd much rather watch uh, Hot Shots than Tom Gun. (laughs) (laughs) I can understand that. I can understand that. So uh, tell us uh, what uh, what film did you pick in the end? I ended up, and I mean, I 
I cannot tell you how sad I am to tell you that this was my pick. <laughs> because I am a huge fan of some of the actors and this director, but I chose 1997's Face Off, directed by legendary Hong Kong director John Woo. There's a felony list a mile long, murder, arson, kidnapping, terrorism, you name it. He's the most dangerous and brilliant criminal mind I've ever known. I, for years, I've, I've been watching him, tracking him, studying his every, every move. I know his every, every mannerism, facial tick gesture. I know him better than he knows himself. And now, after all this time, I finally figured out a way to trap him. I will become him. Starring John Travolta, Nicolas Cage, Alessandro Nivola, Joan Allen, Dominique Swain, and Gina Gershon, with a short appearance by an almost unrecognizable Thomas Jane. Uh, the plot... Master criminal caster Troy attempts to assassinate FBI agent Sean Archer and accidentally kills Archer's young son, Michael. Archer becomes obsessed with capturing Troy, but when they finally get him, Archer accidentally puts him into a coma while the rest of Troy's crew escapes. Unfortunately, Troy was the only lead they had to the location of a huge chemical warfare bomb that's due to go off in six days in downtown Los Angeles. In order to trick Troy's brother into revealing the location of the bomb, Archer must enter his prison disguised as Caster Troy. He undergoes several plastic surgeries to look more like him, including grafting Troy's actual face <laughs> in place of his own, hence the name. Uh, the real Troy later comes out of his coma, calls in his crew. They force the surgical team to give him Archer's face and body type. They then murder the surgeons and everyone who knew about the operation. And it comes down to how will Archer escape the prison, get his family's help, save L.A. when he's forced to look like his worst enemy, and his worst enemy is taking over the FBI. Take a breath. <laughs> That's as simple as I could make it. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Wow. Yes. So, yeah. This is one of the absolutely most batshit high concept films ever made and on the surface it sounds like possibly the best movie ever <laughs> uh nicholas cage to give her performance as caster troy then as sharn archer as played by john travolta in caster troy's body then as sean archer as played by john travolta playing nicholas cage playing caster troy and then John Travolta gets to play Sean Archer. Then Caster Troy is part played by Nicolas Cage in Sean Archer's body. And then is Caster Troy as played by Nicolas Cage playing John Travolta playing Sean Archer. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. As directed by John Woo, who directed A Better Tomorrow and Hard Boiled and The Killer, all starring Chow Yun-Fat. <laughs> As well as the cheesy but delightful Hard Target and the oddball Travolta action movie Broken Arrow. Uh, he was famous for these ballets of violence and elaborate action choreography and high melodrama and slow motion shots, often involving Mexican standoffs and doves flying in the background for some reason. <laughs> yes, I have got a note of doves that seem yes. they are quite a consistent uh, part of, of John Woo's films. Yes, I think you've got absolutely. If you if you sit in <clears throat> if you sit in and watching a, a John Woo film, you're going to get doves. You're going to get slow mo. You're going to get twin gun action. You're going to get mm -hmm. you know high octane 
action violence. Yes. And more doves, probably. Right. So <laughs> I've discovered a couple of the big drawbacks of this movie on rewatch. And the first one is that both characters are not equally bonkers. Mm. And that's a big problem. Caster Troy is this wildly over-the-top, narcissistic, amoral criminal. And Sean Archer is this straight-laced, arrest-obsessed FBI agent with no other discernible personality traits outside of, I gotta get this guy. Mm-hmm. And since most of the running time has the characters with swapped faces, you end up with Nicolas Cage playing an uptight, by-the-book guy, which is not his wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. You know, John Travolta has a ball with the juicy part and choose the scenery all over the place and he's clearly having a grand time and doing a really good job yeah but nicholas cage only gets a few minutes being that over the top yes person i thought i think when i was sort of in the middle of watching it and i messaged you and i said that i think it would have worked better if the roles were reversed mm-hmm. you know and you had john travolta being that the criminal the criminal being that over the top uh villain and then having you know that whole middle part of the film with nicholas cage being nicholas cage basically right it would have been right. a much more enjoyable film i mean i you know to tell you the truth i thought the first third of the film i was totally just this this is a hell of a lot worse than I remember. Mm-hmm. That first part, apart from the Nicolas Cage-iness of Caster Troy's character. Right. And then I really enjoyed the middle part. I thought that moved really quickly and really well, and the action was good. There were a few bits here and there that was a bit off, but then the last part of it was... Yeah, well, we'll get to that. We'll get to the ending. I have some very, uh, <laughs> very, right. very interesting things to say about the the last part of this film. So, yeah, that was the other big problem with this is the editing. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if they gave... I forgot to look it up. I was going to do that before we started the show. I'm sorry. Uh, but I don't know if they gave him an American editor to work with or he had a different editing team than he usually did hey this is nicole just dropping in during editing to let you know that that was in fact the case uh face off was edited by stephen kemper and christian wagner who were both uh hollywood film editors who had never worked with john woo previously but it's cut together so rapid fire in some places Mm. that you literally can't place anyone in space and you can't quite tell exactly what's going on yeah there were there were a couple of sort of key scenes where it was really it was really bad and it actually almost made me sort of recoil the the scene where he first reveals that he's got sean archer's face and meets him in the prison Mm -hmm. and the conversation sort of going quite sort of slowly and then all of a sudden it's like you see anything you like, and it's like bang, and he's holding up the hand, and it's really—it's a really mm. quick cut that just screams really bad editing. And I think it, the other one was where he pulls out the knife to give to Jamie. Is it Jamie, the daughter? Yes, Jamie's the daughter. And there's just a really quick cut of him just flipping out this knife, and it's like 
there's some really bad editing choices. Really, really bad. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And for that reason, in my opinion, only two of the action set pieces really come off well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the first one, with the initial part of the pursuit on an airport runway, where they're keeping Castro Troy's plane from taking off. John Travolta gets to pilot a helicopter to keep the plane from taking off, which I bet he wrote into his contract that he got to do his own flying for that. And Nicolas Cage gets to fire two guns whilst jumping through the air. Very important. Very. And the second is an FBI raid that begins with a shootout in slow-mo from the perspective of a child listening to a syrupy cover of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. (laughs) And it ends with the two main characters having a standoff in a room full of mirrors. You see? Which, of course symbolism yes i like that i thought that was pretty cool you know that i did too because they're aiming at themselves yes. but they're wearing their enemy's face yeah. and it's oh deep. it's so deep it's yeah <laughs> yeah deep and not very subtle yes exactly <laughs> but the rest of the action through the film is hyperactive and it's often too tight to the characters faces the shots are too tight so it's very difficult to follow where they are in relation to each other yeah and i think that you know, even though they are very, it is very quick and quick cuts and quick action, and then you're thrown in the slow mo with it as well, which is, it just baffles your brain a little bit. You've got so much slow mo with so much fast paced action as well, um, right? And it really doesn't help, especially towards the end when they're they're on the boat and the boat crashes. Mm-hmm. You can see the stunt doubles. Oh, yes. So very clearly. I wrote that down. <laughs> they are very clearly neither of the main actors. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing. You think, well, why are you using slow-mo for action set pieces where you're very clearly using stunt doubles? Then surely you set right. yourself up to, to fail and for that to be seen quite clearly in the end result. Right. Or you're bringing the camera in close when there's... Not barefoot exactly, but skiless water skiing mm-hmm. during the boat chase, <laughs> and very clearly not Nicolas Cage doing the water skiing. Yes. And it's so close that you can't miss that, <laughs> you know? And you want, I mean, I realize that of course it's not going to be Nicolas Cage doing the mm-hmm. skiless water skiing, but you want to be able to maintain the illusion. Yes. And it's just completely stripped away in those places totally yeah yeah and i mean the dialogue is super clunky yeah in some places yes the family drama element of it is very very poor Mm -hmm. the script in particular for those parts of the film are just terrible they're just very sort of soap Mm opera-esque um and joan allen's you know she's a competent actor uh, God, she's trying, but yeah. she's not the person to cast in this no, part. No, it just doesn't. It doesn't ring true at all. Not at all. No. Although I did like the 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 slow mo reveal that his daughter is obviously very disturbed because she's wearing goth makeup. <laughs> With the worst, uh, <laughs> like drawn on eyelashes. <laughs> Yeah, it's like that's the mark of a troubled teenager. They've become a goth. 
Right. Oh, yeah. Clearly, her life is going down the toilet <laughs> because she's wearing goth clothes and makeup. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, the the dialogue, especially <laughs> when they capture one of Caster Troy's gang, the the bald man Dieter. Yes. And he quips. Hey, Sean. How's your dead son? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's just. What? Oh. I mean, me, as I would have seen this, so what was it, 97? Yes. So I would have been 14 when it came out. I probably saw it maybe a year after I wouldn't have seen it at the cinemas. So, you know, I mean, even then, you can look back at a line like, how about if I let you suck my tongue? (laughs) And think, oh, that's really... Would you be grateful? No. It was like, (laughs) ugh. Even then, I was like, ugh, that's just... Icky? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think that's the point, is for it to be icky, but it's also just... Not something a person would say, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't sort of... And then there's the bit where they actually say the title of the movie several times in a row. <laughs> oh, <Just> be- <laughs> yeah. yeah. Back and forth. I'd like to take his, his face off. Excuse me, I have to use the little boy's wee-wee room. Cat. You want to take his face? Yes. His face. Oh. The eyes. Nose. Skin. It's coming off. face well i mean do you think that actually gave nicholas cage a script or do you think he was just nicholas cage in i think they must have not necessarily for the parts where he's actually playing caster troy <laughs> i think they were probably you know here's the outline go you know run with this but i think for the parts where he's it's supposed to be Sean Archer mm-hmm. in that body uh, talking to his wife. I think those exchanges actually go very well. Mm-hmm. The script is not perfect during those moments, but the two actors really work in those moments. But that's not what this movie is about. This no. movie is meant to be about the action scenes and this crisis of identity. Yeah. And... It slows the movie down too much, having yeah. those moments. I did think I was quite surprised when I sort of got ready to sit and watch it, uh, just how long it is, because I think it's two hours 15, something like that. It's, it's a lot longer than I remember. It's somewhere around there. And it's almost, I think, almost half an hour before they get to the actual face-swapping surgery. Yeah, which I must say I loved. I did like that bit of you did like that bit? Yeah. Okay. To a degree. I mean, there's, there's bits where you can clearly see it's a, a, a mock-up of Nicolas Cage in particular. He looks 
Yes. It looks very much like his sort of maquette, I suppose, of of him. Looks a little bit like Nicolas Cage looking into a spoon kind of thing. (laughs) It's it's a little bit too concave, I suppose. (laughs) A little too broad, a little too... uh, Yes, Yes. I think I thought that as well with the overhead shot as the two are being prepared for surgery as two dummies, you know, one of John Travolta and one of Nicolas Cage. And Mm. they both look like very bad embalming jobs Mm. of both actors. I think it was more it was more the latter part where once Caster Troy is woken up and he's walking around faceless. Oh, yes. I quite that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a sucker for faceless makeup. That just, yeah, I thought that was really <laughs> quite, quite cool that he would, you know, just carry on without a face and smoking. No yes, less. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yes, that is good. There's just enough goo to sort of obscure mm-hmm. everything and. I remember watching it in the cinema and not wanting to look directly at it because I was afraid <laughs> that it would be truly horrifying. So I think yeah. they sort of counted on that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's passable. If you do look really closely, it's very clear that it's makeup on top of the actor's face. Yeah. It is very difficult without CGI to make it look like people have less in their face. Because you have to build it up in order to create, you know, a divot or mm-hmm. a missing piece. Yeah. So, you end up with the face looking bigger overall to show something missing. Yeah. So, I think they tried to do that as, as little as possible because Nicolas Cage, at least at this point in his life, has a very narrow face. Mm-hmm. Which is why it's wild that they cast him with John Travolta and claimed that they had similar sizes and body types yes yes yeah Yeah. travolta's got that square jaw you know there's a lot of stretching in that isn't there yes although i did like the the little quip about the uh uh, ridiculous chin that was yes i did i loved that (laughs) (laughs) you're supposed to be snitching making me look good look good Mm mm-hmm Seeing that face on you makes me afraid my tiramisu might come back up. Well, think about me. This nose, this hair, this ridiculous chin. With the dimple. And I was just like, all right, okay, good on you, John Travolta, for, you know, poking fun at yourself with so much grace in that moment. But I think it really starts to succeed at that point in terms of the, the story and the plot when, you know, when they do sort of exchange and then you get this... Um, this sort of changeover and, and him executing mm. uh, all the people that know, the only three people that know in the world. And I thought that was a quite nice little motif to the film, really. And of course, we are sad because it's like, no, there goes CCH Pounder. There goes <gasps> all the gravitas in the movie. <laughs> yes, and CCH Pounder is our X-Files connection of the week. Ah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she was Agent Lucy Kasdan in an episode of season two called Dwayne Barry, which is quite a, a pivotal and famous episode of The X-Files and would thoroughly recommend to anybody who's not seen The X-Files to watch that one because it's a good one. Yes. <laughs> also in famous 
characters in there. There's a cameo from Joe Bob Briggs as the prison doctor. And I don't know how well Joe Bob Briggs is known outside of the United States. Mm, But he hosts, uh, he used to host a television show about bad old movies. So sort of um, playing a sort of Elvira type role in hosting playing this kind of redneck character with a cowboy mm. hat and yeah, and he'd always give you a count of how many dead bodies, how many breasts, how many death, you know, deaths uh by particular methodologies. <laughs> so he's in there as the prison doctor and that was right, nice okay. to see and Margaret Cho is one of the FBI agents, uh comedian, actress. I did think I, th- I thought it was quite nice that the the sort of the FBI agents and that sort of FBI office looked very sort of quite naturalistic as well. It did, you know, it was quite a probably more what FBI agents look like, I suppose, than compared to a lot of movies where they would all just be big buff men, I suppose. I'd like to think so. I don't know. It was a little suspiciously United Colors of Benetton casting where it's, you know, like one of each kind of thing in terms of ethnic types. Yeah, I can see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm sure in the more big city offices, it is much more mixed than you would get in, say, you know, Kansas City, Kansas Mm. kind of FBI office. Okay. Uh, And then there's uh, Danny Masterson as the daughter's shitty boyfriend. (laughs) So, (laughs) should pop up later in that 70s show. All right, okay. And then, you know, the the nice thing is that they do work in that confrontation in a church. uh, (laughs) Because Sean Archer's boss has a heart attack in his (laughs) office. And, you know, Castor Troy and Sean Archer's body ensures that he dies. And so at the funeral service, you know, Sean Archer in Castor Troy's body shows up and there's the standoff, (laughs) starts out as a two-way standoff, expands into a five-way standoff. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Whee! (laughs) What a predicament! (laughs) You know, John Travolta as Troy takes the daughter hostage and licks her face, which is so many varieties of creepy at the same time. Yes, I did find that, you know, I mean, I know that Custer Troy is supposed to be, you know, this despicable character and everything else. But, you know, the, mm. there's obviously the earlier scene where she's in her bedroom and he mm. first goes to the house and he I can't remember what the quip is he makes. If you dress like you're in the circus, expect the freaks, something like that, <laughs> yeah. I think it was. But, you know, him obviously leering on his daughter in this state of undress, shall we say. Yes. Um, you know, you know that it's obviously cast a trot, but I just thought it was, it was very... Uh, yes. The best way I can, <laughs> I can describe it. And there's lots of uh, things in this film. Which again we'll get to, right? Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of icky <laughs> things that yeah. make you feel icky inside, yeah. And that's one of them. I mean, one thing for me was um, his brother uh, mm. Pollock's 
Pollux Troy, obviously. Castor and Pollux thing. Are they Greek? Is it Greek mythology or something? Uh, I think it's Roman. Was it Roman mythology? I want to say. It's something it's like that. It's it's it's, <laughs> it's meant to be really clever, sort of naming, isn't it? But uh, but yeah, I thought that the character of Pollux was. It was just so overdone. I think it's obviously meant to yeah. suggest that he's maybe autistic or something. Don't really know. But uh, something like arrested the, development yet he's yeah. the mastermind supposedly who designed yeah. the bomb and it just doesn't really it doesn't work it doesn't work at all no it doesn't yeah. pull it off um i think this I, I forget the actor's name but it's alessandro nivola and i find him a very odd actor the only thing i could think off the top of my head that i've seen him in is Jurassic Part 3. Oh, gosh. I can't think of anything else it's been in. I I know he's, you know, been a steadily working actor, but honestly, I don't know how many films I've seen with him in. And to me, he's a, a journeyman actor, I would say, mm-hmm. which is not who you want to cast with Nicolas Cage. Again, yeah. you've got to get somebody who can match the energy, which is why I'm glad they have Gina Gershon in there, because she can at least hold her own. Yeah. You know, she is feisty. And I mean, at that point in the story, Nicolas Cage is playing Sean Archer in that body. Mm-hmm. So he's being more tamped down at that point. Um, yeah. But she's doing a great job of bringing the energy up for those scenes. Yeah, I thought she was very good. I think that it's tough to, I suppose, write that character because it's she comes across as a very intelligent and a very sort of together character. But then I suppose, that, you know, it could be construed that she's probably changed her outlook on life since becoming a mother, I suppose. Um, yes. But... That sort of character, because of course, yeah, because that, <laughs> but like the way that character sort of introduced and what you get to learn about her and everything else, you still don't sort of think, well, surely she wouldn't hang around this life and these guys. She comes across a bit too, um, too intelligent to do that. I suppose. I think. That is something that they take care of in the script, but it's not as obvious as it should be. Apparently, Mm. you know, Dieter, the bald guy, is supposed to be her brother. Yeah. Although you can certainly, you know, if your brother is a toxic person, you can cut them out of your life. You don't have to hang out with them. Yeah. And the, uh, because I thought, I thought I'd misunderstood that because there's a bit where he's, I think it's after he's been shot in the neck. Mm. And they have this sort of goodbye kiss. Oh, right. No, you're right. You're right. Ugh. And then I think they are brother and sister, but they have this goodbye kiss. And I'm thinking, I would never kiss any of my sisters like that. That is a bit of a no. weird one. <laughs> it's a little bit too, you know. Yeah, I think once once you get to a certain age, you stop mouth kissing your relatives. <laughs> Yes, well, yeah, you do. Yeah. Kiss them on the cheek, you kiss them on the forehead. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. not on the mouth. No. You go much more continental. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> so, so they wrap this up with a lot of hand waving. The mother, Gina Gershon's character, dies. <sighs> Castor Troy dies, but his son is still left without parents. What, whatever will they do? Jesus Christ! This what's going to happen? This, there was a point in the film where I think it was as Gina Gershon's character died and I just suddenly went cold and I was like, I seem to remember where this goes at the end and I was mm-hmm. like, no, they don't, do they? But they do. It goes <laughs> there. Uh, they do. It, it yeah. ma- I, I honestly can say it just made me feel sick. I was like, oh my yeah. God. Yeah, so the man who is responsible for the deaths of both this boy's parents <laughs> has decided he's he's going to adopt him. And, oh my God. And even. Which is wild. You know, and I think that there's a scene earlier on when they're before the face swapping and uh, John Travolta says can you make sure that you put the scar back because mm-hmm. it needs to be there and then at the end he says oh you know take it away I think doesn't he I don't need it anymore or something like that mm. and then he turns back up at his front door with his hair reinstated yeah, restored yeah <laughs> He's not got this scar because he doesn't need that anymore. Yes. His daughter's not a goth anymore. Yes. <laughs> so, and yeah, he's, she's renounced her ways. <laughs> and he's got a, a substitute son, and all is right with the world. Yes. This is yeah. the most sickly happy ending I've ever seen in my life. I think he's got a substitute son that he just sort of airdrops on his yeah. wife and daughter they have no idea this is coming he just shows up with the kid on the doorstep yeah and they accept it <laughs> and they say oh do you want to show him to his room which is presumably their dead son's room mm-hmm. and it, yeah come on yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, we'll not bother marking this day oh. in the calendar anymore when we go and visit our dead son's birth- grave on his birthday we'll just you know mm-hmm. we don't need that anymore it was just right. I just thought Oh. We found something to <laughs> fill the void. Yeah. It was like, oh my God, no. But they uh, did. It's especially gross that they, you know, had kids with like similar hairstyles. Yeah. And they're similar ages. Well, it's 90s. So it 90s. really is like a substitute yeah. they're dropping in. The 90s. Yeah. Well, yeah, all the kids from the 90s, you know, Jake Lloyd. No, I understand what you mean. That's sort of straight, but floppy, but almost a mullet, but not quite. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah, it's sort of the extended basin cut that's... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> very... Yes, the grown, the grown out bowl cut. Yeah. 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 But yeah. Well, uh. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, so that's why I picked Face Off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I completely... I did completely... Uh, yeah I mean I was never you know I wouldn't say I was a huge fan of Face Off I'd seen Broken Arrow before I saw Face Off and I like Broken Arrow a hell of a lot more um, right. th- than this film I feel the same way about Hard Target mm. yeah Hard Target's a good a, a good one I think it's I think Broken Arrow is slightly overindulgent 
Mm. Not as much as face-off, but no. the hard target doesn't go too far with that indulgence. <laughs> Except expecting you to believe that Jean-Claude Van Damme is Cajun. Yeah. Cajun, mm. Belgian, same yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't, see, I, don't, I don't get it. I mean, with John Woo, you know, his, his early films and his, you know, before he became, you know, before he directed sort of English language films... American films although there's a lot of bits that are over the top it's not over the top crap yes I I understand what you mean the killer is definitely it's it's melodramatic and it's over the top but you're still engaged yeah with yeah. it as you're watching whereas you can look at things like face off and definitely when you get to Mission Impossible 2 mm. it's almost like he doesn't give a shit and he just wants to just put out the most pretentious sort of action films in the world. Yeah, it's... I, I don't know. I feel like certain directors do better with a more restrained budget, generally. Yes. Um, although, I will say, and at, <laughs> at five hours, it's definitely an indulgent length, but Redcliffe is this historical... Chinese drama that John Woo directed and it's marvelous it's it's a wonderful film it's beautifully shot it's well done well acted definitely recommend I do not recommend doing the two and a half hour cut there's just too much gone but you know take two nights split it up watch it in two halves but yeah outside of that I think I think John Woo does better with a you know lower to moderate budget because he's got to find creative workarounds Mm -hmm. when you have that yeah well i mean there's a couple of little points i'd like to raise before we we sort of wrap that up one being probably the most prominent wilhelm screen ever in a film (laughs) uh during the the prison escape it's just so loud and on the nose Mm -hmm. um i don't know whether it's something that that Wu's particularly sort of fond of and likes to put in his films, but there's definitely quite a prominent one in Broken Arrow as well when uh, the main sort of henchman gets dumped out of the train on the bridge. I wonder if they just told him it was an American tradition and he felt like he had to stick it in there somewhere. Quite possibly, quite possibly. Um, There's certain points where John Travolta seems to be channeling Jim Carrey um, (laughs) through the film. Uh, which isn't a bad thing. I think it sort of adds to. It helps with him trying to mimic Nicolas Cage a little bit. Mm. And I'd just like to put out probably my favourite line of the film, uh, where John Travolta is driving through his his new neighbourhood as uh, as as now Sean Archer and says that he may never get a hard on again. <laughs> Yes, yeah, he's driving through the neighborhood where all the houses look almost identical and he actually drives past. Yes. <laughs> but I must admit, you know, not being a huge, huge fan of Face Off to begin with, watching it again, yes, it's it's even worse. Well, it's a lot worse than I remember because I, ne- <laughs> I never disliked it, but I was never probably as as high on it as a lot of people were at the time right but yeah yeah. i would i would definitely recommend people go see hard-boiled instead yeah okay 
Right, well that uh, probably leads us to uh, just have take a little break and uh, and come back in a second. Okay, so welcome to the intermission uh, this is the part of the show where uh, i ask my guest a question uh, at random or reasonably random a question they haven't prepared for um and get their genuine first answer so nicole are you ready again for your intermission question as ready as i could possibly be i suppose <laughs> i quite adapt. this this is a good one i think it's a good one anyway so if they were if some shitbag producer were to remake The Godfather, who would you cast as Don Corleone? Do they have to still be Italian? Or can you make it a, a different... Uh... There's no rules. It's who, would, who do you think could pull it off? Idris Elba. Wow. Okay. I think he's got the the gravitas, the force of personality, yeah, uh, the ability to swing to seem like either a, a benevolent godfather or someone who's very dangerous. Okay, I think he could carry it off. Cool. Yeah, I could probably see that. I think he's got that gravitas, I suppose, and he's. I mean, do. You, do you guys over there get uh, Luther? Do you do you see? Yes, yeah, we have it on uh, American Netflix. Mm. Have you watched the it's film? Have you watched the the Fallen Sun? I have not. Yeah. Now, who would you cast? I would suggest somebody like Michael Shannon. Ooh, yeah, I could I see that. He, I think he could could pull it off. Michael Shannon is one of my favorite actors. He's a tremendous character actor. Yes. Um, and therefore, he doesn't get a lot of lead roles. He hasn't got no. sort of quite the conventional leading man face. I rewatched quite recently. I've not seen it since it came out. Um, Take Shelter, which I think is probably his best film. That is on my list of films to watch because I did love him in the Jeff Nichols film Midnight Special. Yeah. And, of course, he's fantastic and terrifying in the shape of water. Mm -hmm. uh, he's got this tremendous intensity yes. to him. I mean, I would... Uh, Take Shelter is one of those films where you can't really go too much into the film. It's a best watching, not knowing anything about it kind of film. But it, mm -hmm. is, it is really good. And I think he's, he's a fantastic actor. I think... In reality, if they ever did remake The Godfather, which I, I can't see them ever doing, mm -hmm. it, you would probably get somebody like a Gary Oldman or somebody playing that role. I, I suppose, yeah. I'd see that. I could see that. Gary Oldman's getting a, a little bit up there for that, I think. Mm. So he's on the, the, on the border, yeah. I think. But that does seem likely he's a, a safe bet. Mm. Okay, 
So uh, let's call that the end of the intermission. We'll head back to the main podcast. Thank you very much, Nicole. Thank you. Okay, so that uh, leads us to to my choice. Uh, I had uh, a couple of considerations for this, really. Um, I'd considered mainly horror films, really. There was a couple of horror films that I'd seen uh, quite recently, and I thought that they didn't quite hold up. Uh, The first one being Saw. He doesn't want us to cut through our chains. He wants us to cut through our feet. Yes, I'm sick, officer. There's a way out of here! There's a way out! I'm sick of it all! We're out of time. Live or die. Make your choice. The original Saw film, uh, which still has a, a lot of very good points to it. Um, actually just rewatched that within the past month yeah it's just dropped on netflix for us over here so saw one and two have um but yeah there's there's a lot of problems with the original saw which uh but yeah that may come up for a, another episode somewhere down the line uh, and the other one was a similar sort of time frame uh was final destination uh, you have to figure out how and when it's coming back at you if you think you can get away with it. But remember, the risk of cheating the plan, of disrespecting the design, could incite a fury that could terrorize even the Grimwalker. And you don't even want to fuck with that Mac Daddy. But I would say both of those are still good. They just weren't as good as I remember. Uh, yeah. Um, can I just say, can we please, 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 in horror movies, stop naming the characters after horror directors? <laughs> can we stop doing that? We've done that enough now. Yes. Done it enough. It's been in at least four different movies. It's time to stop. <laughs> yes. Yes, definitely. It's been done to death, I don't know, hasn't it? Um, so... The film I went for in the end was uh, Batman Forever from 1995. Riddle me this, riddle me that. Who's afraid of the big black bat? In an uncertain world, in a chaotic time, justice wears a mask. So, directed by Joel Schumacher, uh, starring Val Kilmer, Tommy Lee Jones, Jim Carrey, Nicole Kidman and Chris O'Donnell. 
In Batman Forever, Batman must battle former district attorney Harvey Dent, who is now Two-Face, and Edward Nigma, the Riddler, with the help of an amorous psychologist and a young acrobat who becomes his sidekick, Robin. So, from the get-go, I'm a young boy, big fan of Batman. My first introduction into Batman was the 1960s Adam West TV show. Um, first sort of shown to me by very campy, yes, very comic booky, yes. First, first shown to me by my grandmother, who I've mentioned before on this podcast. My, you know, in, introduction to a lot of different TV series and films and science fiction and action and all sorts of things. Uh, Batman is is one of the things that plays slightly close to my heart and a lot of fond memories. And then sort of came along the. Tim Burton Batman 1989 which I would have been seven I think when I first saw and was absolutely enamoured with loved it had it on VHS watched it to death again and again and again Um, Jack Nicholson's Joker is still what I consider to be my Joker I suppose he's the Joker I grew up with and then Obviously, Batman Returns comes out. Uh, didn't have that on VHS. So I didn't get that on VHS. So it wasn't something I watched a hell of a lot of. Uh, and then Batman Forever comes along, 1995. Um, it was the first Batman film I saw at the cinema. I uh, went with my uh, older brother. Uh, and then subsequently got the, the film on, on VHS the following Christmas. And as with the first Batman, I just watched it to death. You know, it just... Loved it at the time. I thought it was fantastic. It was everything you want from a Batman film, an action film. And I thought it was on par with anything that Burton had done. You know, years later, uh, VHS goes to DVD. Um, and I start my uh, massive DVD collection. It was something I was very proud of before I had to get rid of it because I didn't have the room to house it. Um, but that's an- another story for another time. But I never got round to getting Batman Forever on DVD. So it wasn't something I sort of picked up in the DVD years. Uh, I had the original Batman and Batman Returns and watched them a fair bit. Uh, Then years, years later, probably 10, another 10, 12 years later, my daughter started getting into superheroes and superhero movies. (laughs) So naturally, we started looking at the Batman films. And we went through, you know, that evolution from Tim Burton Batman to Joel Schumacher Batman. And this is the point where my memory lapse kicked in, I suppose. Um, Because everybody knows Batman and Robin is a complete shower of shit. Yes. It's a terrible film. Um, I will give it, I will give it this. It is consistently comic book like yes you know in terms of like 1960s 70s style comic books where it's very candy colored it's uh got the the quips it's got the tone everything is very big yes and the shots are you know arranged so that they look like comic book panels a lot of the time yeah so i will i will give it that for design and cinematography yeah choices it's not totally bad by accident it's 
that's how he wanted to make that film mm. in particular. And I think the problem with Batman Forever is it's that bridge between Burton, you know, Batman Returns and Batman and Robin. And it tries and fails to maybe retain that bit of Tim Burton-ness whereas Batman and Robin just goes full on Joel Schumacher I suppose and full on yes. 60s campiness I would agree with that actually because I was watching this movie and the tone you know while I am a I'm fine with a movie changing tones mm-hmm. partway through this t- sort of swings wildly back and forth between mm-hmm. this campier cartoonier version and then this darker more serious approach you know like all the scenes with bruce wayne and chase meridian together are much more toned down they're much more like film noir kind of color scheme Mm. and everything else is literally day glow yes there are some sequences where people have day glow paint all over their faces yes (laughs) and it is jarring I mean, you know, a little bit about the sort of pre-production of Batman Forever. Batman Returns took 150 million less than Tim Burton's original Batman. And Warner Brothers saw that as a product of Batman Returns being even darker than the original Batman. Mm. Uh, It lost a lot of franchise licenses, specifically one with McDonald's warner brothers felt cost them a lot of money which i'm sure it probably did but they didn't want to take that risk again and that was that sort of creative difference led to them not wanting tim burton to uh, direct the next installment um they parted ways i mean burton stayed on as producer for this film but i get the feeling that that was a token sort of role within this film I don't think that his role of producer went any further than maybe giving Joel Schumacher a few pointers um, Mm -hmm. because you don't feel that sort of Tim Burton touch to this film at all I don't think No I think there's some holdovers in production design you know for of Gotham itself yeah, and some of the look to it but other than that, yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, Sam Sam Raimi and uh, John McTiernan actually were considered to, to replace Tim Burton. I'd be actually quite interested to see what they would have turned out. Um, yeah, the Sam Raimi would have been interesting, I think. Yeah, well, I think, you know, he, he probably would have been the better choice, I think, especially when you look at his Spider-Man films, which have dark points in them, especially number two too but i think that sort of tone the tone of his spider-man films probably would have carried on better from batman returns than than this film Mm. but you know joel schumacher wanted to make a darker film um he considered making a version of batman year one to the uh frank miller uh batman uh graphic novel that's the sort of tone he wanted to do uh but uh, i guess warner brothers uh 
stuck to their guns and they wanted something a bit lighter, a bit more family friendly and sort of moved to a, that classic sort of death nail in any film, husband and wife duo of Lee and Janet Scott Batchelor. I think anywhere you see husband and wife duo, whether it's directing, writing, anything like that, it normally ends up in a pretty terrible result. I can't think of anything that's ever been made by a husband and wife duo that's been good. Nichols and May? <laughs> Mike Nichols and Elaine May? No. I think they're the exception that proves the rule, perhaps. Okay. Um, but I think, the, you know, the biggest problem with this film is it, it's the sort of changeover in the canon. It's meant to be within the canon of the Tim Burton films, but too much of that continuity is taken away bar maybe what a couple of of actors that were in those films there's nothing there uh the look of gotham city is just vastly different to the dim burton films uh you've got this sort of quite cool 1930s america i suppose in the tim burton films yeah tim burton is very art deco kind yeah. of look to it but this goes for very sort of extravagant buildings and cityscape almost futuristic really rather than than that sort of uh like you say the art nouveau um mm. it you know there's lots of points in this film that don't really hold up with high definition the cgi cityscapes even some of the miniatures look pretty poor um you know, you've mentioned this sort of almost sort of neon colours to, to Gotham City that, that are quite prevalent. Obviously, all the back streets in Gotham are, are lit by black light as well, mm. which is, is pretty clear in, in some of the later scenes. You go from this very sort of straightforward way of shooting in Batman and Batman Returns to this more sort of angular shots mm. reminiscent of the 60s, TV series uh, a lot of the scenes are shot at angles um, it recycles a lot of cliches really there's there's one point I think it's during the uh, the Edward Nigma party uh, where the henchmen sort of showboating and about to kick Batman's ass Batman just easily dispatches him with a, a simple kick you know that's been done to death in various films i think even in the original batman i think it is there's they do the same thing raiders of the lost ark you know various different action films a lot of the action's very unoriginal there's even a chase scene in the middle of the film that just serves no purpose to the plot whatsoever i think it's just after uh nicole kidman calls him to the bat signal and tries to seduce him um, and he ends up riding the Batmobile, Batmobile up a wall and that mm. sort of thing yes. but it doesn't it doesn't serve any it, there's no progression points in that chase scene or action piece it just doesn't serve any purpose of the film whatsoever right except to show that the Batmobile can go up a wall yeah exactly they've redesigned the Batmobile which looks pretty crap as well compared oh goodness the 1989 batmobile is just it's sleek and sexy and just yeah i wrote that it looked like a bird head that was laser printed and had leds on the inside (laughs) yes yeah 
I think it, it's it's like a lot of this film. It's just they're doing it because they can, redesigning the Batman, the the Batmobile, because they can, and they think that that looks cool and it'll make a nice toy rather than. Mm. Does it really need to be redesigned? Um, the score, which isn't bad, it's okay. It's pretty memorable. It's Elliot Goldenthal, who's you know done a lot of good scores. Some of the ones we've actually discussed on the podcast before, um, Pet Cemetery, Alien Three. Um, you know, he's a competent composer, but it's just not Danny Elfman. You know, no, it's just it's not. It's not as memorable as that. And I think, you know, the, the, one of the biggest problems uh, with this film is the casting. It's, you know, Val Kilmer, for starters, who seems to have lost his charisma after Tombstone. He seems to have no... All of his roles since Tombstone are just so uncharismatic. I mean, things like Heat, he's supposed to be quite cold and uncharismatic but mm. you thought look at things like ghost in the darkness the saint island of dr moreau mm. he was just i think at this point post batman forever he's very much on a downward curve in his career yeah. um i can't think of anything post post this that's great from val kilmer I, yeah, I think the tricky bit with casting this is finding someone who makes both a good Bruce Wayne and a good Batman. And I think Val Kilmer does all right as Bruce Wayne, but not so yeah. much as Batman. Well, one of the biggest problems, especially compared to Michael Keaton's Batman, which, again, mm-hmm. it may just be nostalgia, but he's, you know, he's my Batman. He's the Batman I sort of grew up with for the most part. But Val Kilmer's Batman talks too much as Batman. Mm-hmm. You could probably count on both hands the number of lines that Michael Keaton says whilst he's in the Batman costume. Right. But Val Kilmer is putting out quips, you know, whether it's something like I'll get dry through or um, the bat signal is not a beeper. Yes. Um, or, you know, there's, there's various different lines that he's given. He's now talking openly with Commissioner Gordon. He's he's talking to Dr. Meridian. He's just talking too much as Batman. And it just doesn't even, you know, a well-loved version of Batman, like Christian Bale's, hmm. that character, the Bruce Wayne, the Batman, is always at his worst when he's talking as Batman, I think. Especially Christian Bale, because he <laughs> puts on such a terrible voice when he's uh, he's talking as Batman. But, I mean, apparently he had a, a quite a bad relationship with Joel Schumacher as well. Schumacher didn't like working with Val Kilmer, swore never to work with, uh, with him again. Mm. Um, although he did swear never to work with uh, Jim Carrey again as well. But he did. <laughs> I seem to remember this being a period, in, the starting a period in Val Kilmer's career where he was viewed as difficult. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think Island Dr. Moreau was around the same time, I believe. I think that's a whole other conversation, the Island of Dr. Moreau and that production. Um, but, 
yeah, I don't think he, he didn't have many big roles after you know ninety six, ninety seven. Probably he garnered that reputation for himself, definitely. Mm. But an interesting fact, he did actually find out that he got the role of Bruce Wayne Batman whilst in a Batcave, <laughs> whilst filming uh, The Ghost in the Darkness, which is a, a guilty pleasure of mine. I do like that film. It's very good. Um, even though there's points of that that are, are very terrible. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he had no... I don't think he had any... He had very little chemistry with most of the other cast, specifically... Uh, Nicole Kidman and mm. uh, Chris O'Donnell even as well there's just no sort of chemistry there at ever and they're two vital roles within the film uh, where you need a bit of chemistry yeah especially with Robin being played as such a fiery character yes. in this film definitely um, and I think it's you know it's a shame the vision that Warner Brothers had for the film um, meant that they had to sort of cut a lot of not necessarily backstory because we know about Bruce's parents' death but there was a lot more of that in the original script there's obviously this point about him trying to view his I think it's this book in particular in his dream that he that he sees it's, it's very sort of glossed over in the film uh, in the final film but the original script and there are deleted scenes to it is that that book turns out to be his father's diary um, and in it his father wrote something like don't feel like going to the cinema tonight but Bruce really wants to go so we go in kind of thing right so it leading into this sort of you know their death was his fault and him reacting and learning to live with that guilt and fleshing out that uh, whole scenario surrounding his parents' death, and that's cut down to literally nothing in the fil- in the final film. He he sort of mentions this this recurring dream, and it's it's very much sort of glossed over in the final film. Um, and there is actually a really cool deleted scene where he returns to the original Bat Cave or the the part of the cave where he first sort of fell down and became Batman. Mm. that kind of thing and is confronted by a giant bat or a giant dancer with a bat head and yeah the yeah. wing costume <laughs> <laughs> um but you know that's it's, it's not fleshed out enough in the final film it's just sort of glossed over it's, it's cut down so far to the point where you wonder why they keep bringing it up yes yeah um and then you've got another piece of bizarre well no i don't know well i wouldn't say it's bizarre casting but it doesn't work is is tommy lee jones as two-face oh goodness yeah i don't think it's necessarily so much that he's miscast i just don't think the character on paper is right Mm -hmm. because you know anybody's got a decent knowledge of the comics and the backstory of of Harvey Dent, and I mean, you know, it, it was shown much, much better in in The Dark Knight uh, with Aaron Eckhart. But here, it's just again, it's just sort of glossed over. You know, we don't get an origin story for Harvey Dent. He's just there at the start of the film. Right. We get a brief flashback, but it takes all of twenty seconds, I think, to go. Through yes, that. exactly, and 
Two-Face is probably one of the most complex villains in the whole of the Batman canon. He's this former district attorney who's scarred beyond all imagination and has this sort of major conflict. You know, he's the, the classic sort of character isn't just completely villainous. He's got this this double nature to him. And there's just none of it, apart from a couple of very light takes on it in this film, there's just nothing there. He's he's outright a bad guy. Yes. Yeah, he's a bad guy all the time, and the only thing the coin does is tell him when it's okay to go ahead and try and kill somebody. You know, when the coin comes up heads, it just means that he holds back a little longer from doing what he had planned on doing as his evil self. Let's say we flip for it. One man is born a hero, his brother a coward. Babies starve, politicians grow fat. Holy men are martyred, and junkies grow legion. Why? 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 Luck! Blind, stupid, simple, doodah, clueless luck! <laughs> the random toss. The only true justice. Let's see what justice has in store for you. <laughs> oh, oh, it's like the touch card. Wait, wait. Fortune smiles, another day of wine and roses. Or, in your case, beer and pizza. But, but you said you'd let me live! Too true! And so you shall! Nothing better than live bake to trap about! Exactly, I mean, this was, you know, this is something that to a lot of major Batman fans really didn't ring true is that there's that particular scene where. Uh, Two-Face and the Riddler invade the the Batcave and he's constantly flipping the coin until it gets the right side Mm -hmm. for him to be able to shoot Bruce Wayne. And that's not in keeping with the Two-Face character. The Two-Face character in the comics would go with what the coin tells him. Mm. He wouldn't just keep flicking it until it gets the answer that he wants. That's there's no confliction there. There's right. Um, It'd be one flip and him saying, you know, not going to kill you today. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, it's, it almost plays it. I think Tommy Lee Jones almost plays it more like the Joker. Mm-hmm. It might have even been a good interpretation of the Joker character rather than Two Face. I could see that. I think he's very over the top and and quippy and nasty. But you know, I think it really, it, like I said earlier, I think it really hurts that he's he's not got that origin story. He's just there, um, and his opening sort of heist is pretty shit as well. It's just yeah. There's no sort of backstory to that. You've got this ridiculous scenario of this bank vault that's removable. Yeah. starters um, yeah, they don't usually do that no they don't usually do that and they don't usually put bank vaults on upper floors of buildings no and you've got the world's strongest helicopter 
<laughs> that can lift this bank vault quite easily um, coupled with the world's strongest bit of drywall as well that can hold this this vault that's just swinging in midair and put it perfectly back into place but I mean it, 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 you know, there's points in this where it even pissed me off in 1995 when I saw it as a teenager um, the helicopter's got a steering wheel <laughs> which I can imagine only now you know watching it recently it's only got a steering wheel so that they can use a steering wheel lock to stop Batman from diverting it yes yeah, there's a gag later with a steering wheel lock, which yeah. I have not seen in decades. I haven't seen one yeah. of those. So they, they, they use this to stop Batman diverting it away from the Statue of fucking Liberty hmm. that has magically appeared in Gotham City with a Gotham written across its forehead, which, again, is just, you know, absolutely bizarre. But, you know, the, the character of Harvey Dent was introduced in... Tim Burton's original Batman, played by uh, Billy D. Williams, mm-hmm. uh, who was uh, Lando Carrizin, and he was actually signed on to play Harvey Dent in future instalments, mm-hmm. uh, but his his contract was bought out so that they could bring in Tommy Lee Jones. Which is sad to me <laughs> that Billy D. Williams didn't get that opportunity because they had teed it up so neatly. Ahead of yeah. time. I mean, I can I can see it from a viewpoint of was Billy D. Williams a big enough star to take that role, and could you see him as performing that role? Probably not, but it would have been interesting not to see rare. him. No, it but it would have been interesting to see that continuity and that um, give it a go. I mean, you know, would anybody really realistically? at the point that Heath Ledger was cast as the Joker, really see Heath Ledger as the Joker? No. No. I remember that very distinctly yeah. when that movie was being made. Everybody was saying, Heath Ledger? You can't... Really? Really? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, that it leads us on to the next bit of casting and probably the best part of this film. And it still holds up for me, I think, is Jim Carrey. Um... <sighs> There are, there are parts of the character and the way that it's written that are terrible. Mm. I'm assuming from that intake of air, you don't agree with that. <laughs> uh. Yeah. No, I agree that there are there are parts where he's really got a, a mastery and is holding the screen, but he's, I think he's overindulged in this film. There are times where he cranks it to 11 and way beyond. Edward Nygmunt, come on down! You're the next contestant on Brain Drain! I'm G. Ooh, I'll take what's inside. Thick skull number one! What have we got Ooh. for him, Johnny? <laughs> Stickly! I'm having a breakthrough! Kind of breakdown? Maybe! Nevertheless, I'm smarter. I'm a genius. No, several geniuses. And it's an entirely separate movie from what everyone else is making. Okay. I think the, the rubber face, ex- facial expressions are a little too much in places. I think some of the ad-lib dialogue is a little too much in some places. 
Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I mean, he's he's obviously coming off a mat. You know, he's got the the rocket ship strapped to his back at this point. Yes. In time, definitely. he's coming off the mask, Ace Ventura, Dumb and Dumber. Right. They were thrilled to have him for this movie. Yes. Oh, yes. I mean, you know, the original, um, the first person they asked was Robin Williams, who turned it down pretty much flat because he had been used as as bait for getting Jack Nicholson to play the Joker in the original Batman. Mm. Um, Jack Nicholson was umming and ahhing about uh, whether or not to play the Joker, and they said, oh, well, we've got Robin Williams, knowing full well that they didn't really want Robin Williams, and he had that, that bit of sort of taste in his mouth and and, and sort of flat out refused to, to play the Riddler. But I think there's parts of the Riddler origin that don't sort of ring true. It's very sort of slapdash. Um, there is the, the scene, and it made me giggle even more actually watching it this time. So there's a scene where he fakes the suicide of his boss. Oh, yes. Ed Bagley Jr. Yes. Doing the uptight boss. And he um, he says he, he's doing his whole sort of fake, this over-the-top fake crying thing, and then he produces the suicide note. It's, this is it, this is his suicide note. You'll find that his handwriting, sentence structure, and spelling match perfectly. Yes. And then cut to the next scene, and you see the suicide note that literally just says, "To who it may concern, from Fred Slattery, re my suicide, goodbye cruel world." And it's like, yes, <laughs> it just really tickled me. That I thought that was really funny. Um, but I think the whole sort of master plan of the Riddler and the the setup is really poor. It is more akin to the nineteen uh, sixties sort of style of Batman and their fiendish plots, and that's where I think it probably it doesn't help that character, the Riddler. I think the riddles are, are almost sort of not. The fact that he is the Riddler is very much sort of pasted into his character. Mm-hmm. There's not his origin story that he's a uh, a scientist and he's come up with this invention about brain waves and everything else. You don't really get the the impression that he's obsessed with riddles and questions and this sort of thing until he's coming up with his supervillain name and identity mm-hmm. and then and that's when it, it's sort of thrown in the puzzler the gamester captain kill I mean, he looks good. He looks, you know, it's yeah. very comic book, very eye-catching. It takes that inspiration from the comic book, his costume and everything else. Right, got the brightly coloured unitard kind of look for the most part. Yeah, yeah. And especially when he goes full on Freddie Mercury in the finale. You know, he's, <laughs> uh, you know, he's got his jumpsuit on. Much better than the Two-Face 
you know, Two-Face does oh. not hold up well in high definition at all. It is awful. Yeah. Absolutely awful makeup. Oh, gosh, I forget what I wrote it down as looking at it. It reminded me of a doll that somebody had left on the grill for too long, uh, and it yes. partially melted. But for some reason, they make his makeup mostly hot pink. Yes. You know, this sort of deep magenta color. And then they light him with red light all the time, which negates it completely. Yeah. You can't see that it's pink anymore when you've got it covered, bathed in red light. Yeah. And I don't understand why they did that. There's a lot of weird lighting choices in this movie, but that one I really didn't get. It's another point of that sort of mixed-up continuity from the Tim Burton films, which it's trying to carry on from. You know, you look at things like the extravagance of the penguin makeup, mm-hmm. and even the Joker makeup, the Jack Nicholson Joker makeup, it still falls within that realm of realism. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can believe that the penguin character may look like that. And even the Joker to some extent, but if Harvey Dent had acid thrown in his face, he wouldn't look magenta pink. Right. At all. Which I suppose in 1995 you can't have a, a PG rated film with the Aaron Eckhart makeup from <laughs> The Dark Knight, I suppose. No, no, I'm really, I'm honestly surprised that that made it in the dark night that they had that <laughs> one really clear shot of that makeup and it still made it PG-13. Yeah. But this looks plasticky. Yeah. You look at the INDB trivia and it says, oh, you know, the, the two-face makeup took four hours to apply and you think, well, 1995, four hours is probably not a long time, to be fair, compared mm-hmm. to some really good makeups. So that's probably right for the the quality of the makeup that uh, that they end up with. And I can imagine that Tommy Lee Jones is pretty crotchety to, to <laughs> apply makeup to for four hours, so they probably just got to a point and thought, fucking hell, you know, yeah. that'll do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd imagine him sitting there. He's 49 years old, I think, at the time, somewhere mm. around there. Yeah. And sitting in the makeup chair, going, are we done yet? You know, and then... Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then we move on to, actually, before we move on from that, just one last thing about the Riddler. Another scene that I really enjoyed, or thought was pretty nice, uh, was the, uh, and it wasn't something necessarily that I'd picked up on before this sort of last rewatch, was the, they're at the um, the Nigmatech uh, launch party, I suppose, mm. and he's completely emulating everything that Bruce Wayne does, taking his glasses yes. off, putting them back on. And I didn't pick up on that before, to be I honest. did like that bit. Yeah. And it's quite strange that his hair changes length um, throughout <laughs> the film. Um, right. It wasn't clear to me the first time I saw this, but it, it was much clearer that the in Riddler mode, Jim Carrey is wearing wigs. Yes. Yeah. That are for some reason red? I don't know why. Yes. Yeah. No, I couldn't figure that one out. Because I don't think he's... I don't think any of the the comic book versions of the Riddler have red hair. Yeah. I don't think. I wonder if it was just contrast with the green in the suits. Possibly. Possibly. 
And there is this scene where they start to see people's fantasies at this Enigma party as well, and this this sort of uh, sweaty middle-aged man who's dreaming of being on a desert island or something like that. Mm. I just think, well, it's it's obviously a PG film, so it's probably really not his <laughs> deepest fantasy. Absolute fantasy, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then, you know, I'm just going to skim through this because there's not really much too much to say about it. Uh, Nicole Kidman as Dr. Chase Meridian, who's literally reduced to the sort of eye candy and being completely shallow within two seconds of being on camera. Yeah. Just utterly ridiculous. I mean, Nicole Kidman, she looked absolutely incredible, you know. Oh, yes. Just... Um, stunning stunning yes exactly um and you know she's claiming that uh, batman is really interesting just because he told her that bats aren't rodents <laughs> um, yeah, he he negs her yeah almost immediately in the movie you know they get introduced and Dr. Chase Meridian throws her professionalism out the window and is looking at Batman like he's the only bit of food that she's seen since being on a desert island for three Mm -hmm. weeks without anything to eat. She she looks like she wants to devour him and hurls herself at him (laughs) shamelessly. I read your work. Insightful. Naive, but insightful. I'm flattered. Not every girl makes a superhero's night table. Can we reason with him? He's holding innocent people up there. It won't do any good. He'll slaughter them without thinking twice. Agreed. A trauma powerful enough to create an alternate personality leaves the victim... In a world where normal rules of right and wrong no longer apply. Exactly. Like you. Well, let's just say I could write a hell of a paper on a grown man who dresses like a flying rodent. Bats aren't rodents, Dr. Meridian. Really? I didn't know that. You are interesting. And call me Chase. For your work, it's insightful. Naive, but insightful. (laughs) And it's just like... Wow. Yeah. And she's into it. Yeah. Despite being a psychologist. That's it. You should be able to spot that a mile away. Literally, the next scene that she's in, she's uh, disrobing in a... You know, skimpy outfit, and then yeah, it's just a shame. I think, especially considering the, you know, the versatile actress that Nicole Kidman has become. Mm. Um, pro- you know, to be fair, probably not long after this film, it's a reasonably early role for, I suppose. Um, especially when it comes to to you know big budget Hollywood films, but. Yeah, it's a, it's a shame. She's wasted a lot here. Yeah, I think this is like seven years into her big career. Like, I think 88 was Dead Calm. What was it? She was she was very... And that was sort of her launch pad. Yeah. She was still only a teenager then, though, wasn't she, I think, if I remember rightly. Yeah, I think she's 18 or 19, maybe. Very young. I'm sure I saw something recently, something in... God, you know, she was can't imagine her being just a teenager when she made that calm and then the next sort of oh god big piece of of casting chris o'donnell as robin hot dick grayson (laughs) (laughs) 
Wow. <laughs> He's got the most 90s sideburns. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, his whole family does. All the uh, flying grease yeah, and men yeah. have the pointy, pointy sideburns. Yes. These are the sideburns that we all try once we start getting facial hair. We try them all at one point. I stuck with them for a long time before I went for the full beard. Um, and I always thought I pulled them off. But when I split up with my uh, ex-partner after 11 years, her advice to me was, get rid of the sideburns. Girls don't like them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, fine. And then suddenly grew a full beard. But anyway, that's... Uh, that's another story for a different time. <laughs> um, but Chris O'Donnell. I mean, there's nice touches to, to, to Robin. The continuity with the origin story and the death of his family is pretty grim. Yes. You know, it's, it's pretty heartbreaking. Although it's a weird contrast with, you know, the death of his family, but it's because he just got rid of this comically round bomb with a yes. giant timer on it yeah. that he rolls off the top of the circus and it goes yes. flying into the bay. That is going up by design by the bad guys as well. Mm. Two faces sending it up for some bizarre reason rather than leaving it on the ground where it's going to do the most damage and impact to the guests at the circus. But it's going up anyway. But again, you know, similar to, to face off the slow-mo used in the trapeze act. Mm. Again, why are you doing that? Because you can clearly tell that these people doing these stunts are not the actors that are playing the Graysons. Yeah, I did not understand that. It's like, why not just hire the acrobats and have them play the parts? They don't have that many yeah. speaking lines. No. But I thought it was a nice touch that they used. And, you know, the original Robin costume was mm -hmm. what they they used for their act. I thought that was a nice little touch. Right, it's a circus costume, yeah. But then there's no development from his family dying. Or there's very little, you know, you we literally cut to Dick Grayson turning up at Wade Manor, expecting mm. to become the ward of of Bruce Wayne. Yeah. There's no development there at all. No. And why? Is he... How old is he supposed to be? Well, I mean, in, in the comics, he's he's a teenager. Okay. But obviously, this is very much horror movie teenager territory, <laughs> uh, where he's, yeah. you know, clearly mid-twenties, possibly close to 30. Right. I was watching that and saying, why does he need someone to look after him? He's a grown man. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But I did, there's a little line in here that I did quite like. I thought it was quite good. Was that um, he says he's going back to the circus, and Bruce Wayne says, oh, "You know, the the circus will be halfway to Metropolis by now," which is obviously mm. a nod, uh, a tie yeah. into the to Superman. Um, uh, and then you know his his love of bikes forces him to to sort of stay and become this this ward of Bruce Wayne. Uh, and Alfred picks up on his helmet that looks like a robin, that looks nothing like a robin. <laughs> I don't know if you have particularly different robins in the United States, but that looks nothing like a robin. No, no, ours are mostly brown. They've just got the orange on the chest, and that's just the male robins. So That's fine. It's not just me, then. Uh, <laughs> no, it's not just you. 
Um, but we, we know that uh, Dick Grayson can handle himself because of how he does his laundry. Uh, you know. Oh, <laughs> I hate that thing so much. Leave that, Master Dick. I'll attend to it. <clears throat> I'm not used to being waited on, Al. the ninja laundry scene yeah uh and then he you know he, he subsequently finds out that uh, bruce wayne is batman finds the Batcave cave in the most peculiar way ever um and the first thing he does is take the batman batmobile out for a spin and uh tries to pick up some sex workers do you know who play the sex workers only because you posted it on Facebook. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, sex workers played by uh, 90s R&B group En Vogue. Yes, indeed. Because <laughs> they that one woman has a line, the one who's dressed in pink, and I'm like, I know her. I've, I know that face. <laughs> I'm like, yes, that's from the Never Gonna Get It video. Yeah, and, you know, he goes from this... Again, it doesn't quite, you know, there's, there's, no, there's not that development with him. Obviously, you know, when he first goes to Wayne Manor, he's, he's angry and he wants revenge and everything else. But then he finds the Batmobile and then he's playful and then mm-hmm. he meets up with Bruce Wayne and then he's hangry again, you know, he's blaming... Bruce Wayne for the death of his parents because Bruce Wayne obviously didn't stand up and make himself accountable for being Batman, and that's why his parents. But he died. did. He tried. And he tried, yeah. But that it's just Two-Face just couldn't hear him. Yeah, it's just the character of Dick Grayson is just thrown about all over the place, and right. it's a shame, really, because it it could have been so much more. And he's epically terrible at driving the Batboat as well. <laughs> he lasts literally. What a minute, I think, before he yeah. has to eject, which is, I suppose, fair enough. He's, he's the first time he's driven it. And I mean, there are sea mines as well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that was another sort of scene that just felt like it was thrown in mm-hmm. for the sake of having, you know, they could have a bat boat and a new bat wing toy. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but I did like the I like the little sort of quip about the the holy rusted metal Batman. Oh. Um, I thought that that was it was all right. It yeah. All right. Um, yeah. So um, as I mentioned before, you've you've got Michael Goff returning as as Alfred, who's doing his best. Really, <laughs> not much of a stretch from his from the previous. Pat Hingle, who's uh, Commissioner Gordon, they're literally the only two connections to the Tim Burton films. Mm. Uh, everything else is just thrown out the window. Pat Hingle's just, yeah, he's just reduced to um, being a bit of exposition, I suppose. That's that's all he does. Um, right. And gets one of the worst scenes in the film where the bat signals up in the air and a question mark appears over the bat signal 
and they stole the lasers from Pink Floyd's laser show to <laughs> yeah. put that up there. And somebody quips, "Who's doing that?" And Commissioner Gordon <laughs> says, it's the Riddler. And it's like, well, of course it is. <laughs> Although I did like how, you know, see, Edward Dingham comes up with the name The Riddler on mm. his own in his weird apartment with his fortune telling riddlery type uh, arcade machine in the corner. Yes. He comes up with The Riddler. He's The Riddler. But on the news report, when they start, they sort of crime spree the newscaster says Gothamites are calling him the Riddler <laughs> which is you know fortunate for the Riddler because he's already called himself the yeah. Riddler yeah that, so, was a, that was a lucky coincidence so there we go uh, but I think you know it's just it's just too much re-watching it in later years it's just too much of a departure from the Tim Burton films mm. they went too far I know they wanted to move away from the darker tones of the Tim Burton films, but I think they could have still done that within the continuity of those two films. Yeah. I I spent a lot of this movie saying, who is this for? Yeah. Because you've got the comic booky, candy color, silly, goofy bits to appeal to kids, you know, you've got the bank guard saying things like, <laughs> oh, oh no, it's boiling acid! You know, and really big uh, and silly. And then you've got these deep psychological things and all these sexual references. Yeah. What is it about the wrong kind of man? In grade school, it was guys with earrings, college, motorcycles, leather jackets. Now, oh, black rubber. Try firemen, less to take off. I think there's a stealth gay joke thrown in where Robin asks Bruce Wayne, you know, hang out in a lot of biker bars, Bruce? When he compliments his motorcycle. Yeah. Well, there is, you know, I think <sighs> that there's a lot of homoerotic commentary thrown at this film. And I think, you know, obviously Joel Schumacher is... A, 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 he's an openly gay man. Yeah. He's an openly gay man. But, I mean, I don't I don't necessarily see that. I think it's, it's very easy to, to throw that at this film and Batman and Robin. But at the same time... Is it any more homoerotic than the 1960s Batman? Yeah. Or is it any more homoerotic than Top Gun? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. She brought up her. Yeah. Although, honestly, that's also directed by a gay man. (laughs) Except you'll you'll probably get sued for saying that by Tom Cruise. Uh, Well, well, I'm I'm not (laughs) saying he is. I'm saying the film (laughs) is. Yeah, exactly. Although, you know, know, a lot of women enjoyed that volleyball scene and watched it multiple times in a row. Not saying that I did that, but it's possible. Uh, But (laughs) (laughs) 
So in Batman Returns, the original script had the introduction of the Robin character, who was mm. ca- actually cast um, a young Marlon Wayans. Oh, interesting. Uh, was cast as Dick Grayson and told that his services were not required for the third Batman film. Oh, uh, hmm. And recast as... So you've got, you know, Billy D. Williams being recast. Yeah. <laughs> and Marlon Way's being recast. So I would say, yeah. if anything... I, I wonder what the common factor is there. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, uh. there's probably that you could throw in there. I don't know. Yes. I mean, like, you know, I would probably say that you, you could argue that the casting of Billy D. Williams, he's maybe not competent as an actor for that role, and I don't think it would maybe work. But I think, you know, Marlon Wayans as Robin would have been mm. a definitely more interesting than Chris O'Donnell. Yeah, I mean... Uh- Honestly, I thought Chris O'Donnell did better than I remembered. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Uh, for yeah. the first time. But he's not called upon to do much. He's basically called upon to be angry for most of the movie. And I think that's the big problem with the film, is I think you've got too much going on. Mm. This film needed to eradicate the Two-Faced character. Yeah. And not have that at all. Have that bit more development of the Edward Nick McCallick character. Yeah. And more reason for him to become the Riddler. Mm. Um, delve into that, the psychology side of things with Bruce Wayne and the death of his parents. Right. And more character development for Dick Grayson. Yeah. And have that arc being a little bit more before he becomes Robin. But... It doesn't. I think the two-faced character is there because of a the way he looks, and b he brings cronies to be dispatched by Batman and Robin, basically. Yeah. Why do they all have so many facial piercings? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that was so strange. I didn't remember that. From when I first saw this film, but all of Two Faces mm. goons have multiple facial piercings for some mm-hmm. reason. You know, they've got lip rings, they've got eyebrow rings. Yeah, it's so strange. It is an odd, odd choice. But yeah, it's always tricky bringing in more than one villain. It's a yeah. difficult balancing act, and certainly not one that the writers of uh, let's see, one episode of The Equalizer. And two of a Christian show called McGee and Me uh, <laughs> could bring to this film. Oh, mo- more recently, yeah. they wrote uh, Pompeii. Oh, okay. One with... Uh, Jon Snow. What's his name? Kit Harrington. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think, you know, there's there a couple of points I'd just like to make, actually, before we wrap that up. The sort of modern Robin costume, I suppose, mm. call it. Um, when he finally becomes the fully fledged sort of psychic, I thought that was pretty good. I thought they did. There was a good take on that. Um, you sort of see the the modern versions of the Batman costume, and I thought that that take on the the Robin costume was was quite good. I think it, it could have been a lot mm. worse. A difficult thing to pull off, and I think they managed to pull it off quite well. In modernizing yeah, it. Yeah, it's certainly many times better than Burt Ward's Robin costume from the 
yes. six six TV yeah. series. I think there, there there is an interview with Chris O'Donnell where he, they talk about the nipple gate. I suppose it's <laughs> <laughs> where you know um, there was criticism that the latest. That suit had nipples as well as Robin's costume. Um, uh, Chris O'Donnell said, I, it, "I wasn't worried about the nipples. It was the the rather excessive cod piece that I was <laughs> more worried about." <laughs> and yeah, I think I think they managed to pull it off pretty well. To be fair, yeah, I think so. And I mean, yeah. It, also, to be fair, it's something that was in you know like ancient Roman armor. Some varieties mm. had nipples sculpted into it so i don't think it's necessary in a rubber or kevlar or whatever material they claim it's made out of suit yeah but i didn't think it was excessive at least not in this movie it was not excessive Mm. and and also a shout out to drew barrymore who was obviously um at some sort of midpoint in her career i suppose really which is doing these mid-range parts. Yeah, this was right before Scream. Yes. She yeah. did this. And then the her counterpart, uh, Debbie Mazar, who plays the... Uh, spice. G- spice, right. Sugar and Spice. The evil-ish girlfriend of Two-Face. Yeah. She does not get to, uh, almost anything to do or any no. lines to say, unfortunately. No. And also, a shout-out to the soundtrack for this film, because it produced two pretty epic singles mm. as well that tied into this film. The first being Kiss from a Rose by Seal, which is pretty memorable, and uh, let me get this right, in the right <laughs> order. And Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me by U2. Yes. Which is one of my favourite U2 songs. I, I like it quite a bit. It makes a really good end credits starter. Yeah. There are a couple things I wanted to call out. Mm -hmm. One, a shout out for the cameo from Rene Aubergenois, who is the doctor at Arkham Asylum, Dr. Burton, Ah. wearing a Tim Burton wig. Yes. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing I wanted to bring up is that I, I feel like this film could have worked if they were willing to keep the sort of darker direction that Tim Burton had started it with. Mm. I think it really could have worked with this cast if you, with the exception of the villains, if you had changed the villain to Killer Croc. okay. He's a much more straight horror type of villain. Yeah. Uh, He's very, you know, he's monstrous, he's evil, and I think that, really could have worked because you know i I liked the more serious bits Mm. of this film i wish they had toned down the fun bits but of course you know the studio wants to make as much money as humanly possible and they felt like they could make more by making it more kid-friendly yeah even though a lot of the day glow parts take place in the more criminal parts of town 
Yeah. You know, where there's this gang trying to capture this woman for we don't know what purpose. Mm-hmm. And Chris O'Donnell, you know, Robin Esta try to rescue her. And there are sex workers. And it's like, why? Why yeah. have that well, I think, in that part? I don't know. I think it, it, it's just a massive shame because I think even, you know, the Tim Burton Batmans. I mean, yes, Batman Returns is probably that bit more darker than the original Batman mm. but there's with a little bit of clever or tighter editing in Batman Returns you could make that film just as good as it is and I think it's a stand-up sequel but you can make it just as much of a stand-up sequel with a little bit of editing and mm. a little bit of Taking a little bit of the the blood and the gore, maybe, because there's one or two bits in there of of sort of bloodiness and grimness, I suppose. You could take that out and make it that little bit more family friendly. Mm. I don't think they needed to go to the extremes that they did with Batman Forever. No. The version I watched was slightly different to the version I had on VHS. In the the version I watched for this, where Edward Nigma throws um, his boss through the window, the VHS version I had as a child, he just sends him flying out the window. Mm. Whereas this version that I watched for the in terms of research, he hangs him over the edge. Yes, and has that bit of playfulness with him. Um, before, you know, sending him flying. So I think, you know, there's, they could have definitely kept that little edge of darkness to Batman Forever, the Tim Burton darkness, and still made it more family-friendly. Yes. But then, obviously, you know, a couple of years later, we go full-on batshit crazy I suppose yes into Batman and Robin yeah and then you know uh, deliberate camp yeah and another what is it 10 years till we get anything else mm. Batman begins I think yes. it's about 10 years later and it's a shame because I think you know after Batman and Robin you know the premise was or Joel Schumacher wanted to make a Batman film where Clint Eastwood is playing Bruce Wayne and there's the Scarecrow involved as well. And yeah. Really making this sort of aged Batman epic, I suppose. But we never get that. The last sort of Batman we get in this canon is... Oh, God, I can't think of the line now from Mr. Freeze. Oh. <laughs> I keep... Do you know what? I keep wanting to say... Ice to see you, but that's from The Simpsons. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's not. It's what is it? It's uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, we just get the debacle that is Batman and Robin. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think you know this. For me, this is a tough one um, because on the latest rewatch of Batman Forever, I hated it even more than. The previous rewatch with my <laughs> daughter um but at the same time face off you know affected me more physically i suppose yeah 
Especially the ending. <laughs> yeah, I was so sad to discover how chaotic it was. Because I remember in the yeah. movie theater being completely blown away by how over the top I thought it was. But yeah. I only remembered the first part of the Nicolas Cage performance before they swap faces. And I didn't remember the rest of it where he's playing the FBI agent in his body. Mm-hmm. And it's just, he gets so, at least comparatively, he gets so flat at that point. Yes. And it just really drags down those parts of the movie. Yeah. And I was so sad. I was so sad. <laughs> you know, because I had told people for years, oh my goodness, you got to see Face Off. It's bonkers. You'll love it. It's wild. And I don't know that I would do that anymore. I would say it, it's pretty good. Parts of it are really good. Parts of it not as great. <laughs> yeah. Editing's a little wonky. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Okay. Well, I think we'll we'll maybe call a little bit of a stalemate there, then, <laughs> shall we? I think. Um, we'll we'll leave that. But I mean, I I didn't love Batman Forever. <laughs> no, no. I mean, you know, I always thought as at the point where. I saw it and watched it repeatedly on VHS. I always thought, oh, yeah, that's a good interpretation of Bruce Wayne. Um, like Two-Face and the Riddler. I was never super hot on Robin, mm. but, you know, I thought it was a good continuation of the Tim Burton Batman. And then, you know, on rewatch, it's like, no, it's not. It just completely... It just doesn't keep up that canon yeah. whatsoever. Uh, but yeah, it's a complete Hollywood movie, really. <laughs> Definitely. It's a cash cow. It's a cash cow. It's too many cooks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so uh, that about wraps us up for our lapsed memory. What was it you called it? <laughs> Nostalgia Fails. Nostalgia Fails episode. So thank you once again for for joining me, Nicole. Thank you for having me again. Do you know what I think? These where we're looking back on these these not so good films, they're actually quite enjoyable to discuss. Yes, yes, that's the great thing about having a movie podcast is that you yeah. you do find a way to get some enjoyment out of bad movies by talking <laughs> about them. So, do you want to uh, tell us uh, a little bit about uh, how people can get in touch with you, where they can hear some other stuff uh, that you're doing? You can find me at Movie Go Round. That's Movie Go Round Podcast, mgrpodcast.com, or Moving Around on any of your podcast apps. And you can find me on Letterboxd at Nicole underscore Davis, D A V I S. Okay. So it just leads me to thank Nicole again for, for joining me on the Movie Duel podcast. And until next time, uh, it just leads me to say goodbye and uh, leaves Nicole to say... It's the car, right? Chicks love the car.